Welcome to the Sunday message from Hollyview Church in Boring, Oregon. We gather every Sunday morning as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our little place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now here's this week's message from Hollyview Church. Pastor Joel is speaking from Zechariah chapter 1 this week with the message, The Man Among the Myrtle Trees. Good morning. I'd like to invite you to grab your Bible and join us as we continue our study in the prophet Zechariah. If you want to turn your Bibles there to Zechariah chapter 1. If you need to find out where that is, you can go to the table of contents, which is in the front of every Bible, and find the page number. Or you could turn to the book of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, and flip back just a few pages, and you'll see the book of Zechariah, the second to last book of the Old Testament. Last week we began by looking at the role of prophets in the Bible and saw them as covenant sheepdogs, calling God's people to return back to the Lord as he gathers them and calls them uh, in direction and to change their heart to come back to the Good Shepherd. Well, uh, now we begin two months later. Zechariah in one night is given uh, eight visions from the Lord. That's over the next six chapters that we'll look over the next several weeks. But today we'll just look at the first two visions in chapter 1. So I'd like to begin today by reading from Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 7. Zechariah 1, 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shavat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, and then the vision goes on. We'll stop right there. Uh, but if you scan this ahead or you've read ahead, you, you would see two strange visions from Zechariah of four horsemen and some myrtle trees, along with the second vision of, of horns and craftsmen. And, and if you've read it or are familiar with these two visions, you're probably asking, what is going on here? What are we to make of these Two visions. Well, we'll spend a little time this morning uh, unpacking those, much like a, a puzzle. We'll put the different pieces together to try and see the picture and meaning of what is going on in these two visions. But before we do that, let's, let's begin by praying. Lord, thank you for your word. And as uh, sometimes these words are difficult to understand, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to see what you would have us see, that you would allow us to hear the words that you spoke through your prophet Zechariah so long ago, but so applicable to us today. Lord, I pray that you would change our hearts, that you would soften them, that you would uh, call us to yourself, even through these visions. And you say we pray. Amen. Well, as we consider these first two visions, I'd like to think about our context and perspective that we come from in the year 2024 in America. You know, every culture has a symbolic way to communicate meaning. Uh, 
we, we often communicate things in symbols and images. Uh, for instance, here in America, if I said something like this in the second year of the presidency of Obama, the White House issued a statement that created a deeper divide between the elephants and the donkeys. Well, you might have some idea of what I'm talking about, and you're thinking about timing of when Obama was president. You're maybe thinking about political parties represented by donkeys and elephants. But now, now imagine if somebody found a newspaper article, say, a thousand years from now, and read uh, an article about a, a house that happens to be white that's speaking and issuing decrees, and then animals are fighting over it. They may imagine this crazy world where buildings are talking and animals are fighting and actually might miss the meaning of what is trying to be communicated through those symbols. You know, we experienced this disorientation when we moved to Slovenia, which is a much different culture than here. Let me just share with you about one of those experiences. In the third year of the reign of Janez Drnošek, on the 16th day of the second month, known as February there, we, we joined our neighbors in the village of Shenchur. It was a freezing cold Thursday morning. Well, standing outside to behold this parade of some of the strangest, most bizarre images that we had seen. There were these people with huge heads, uh, maybe six, seven, eight feet tall. And really, it was like puppet material that they were made out of. And they would be wearing signs or on uh, funny-looking floats. And the people all around us would see these people and just laugh and talk with each other. Uh, there was some meaning there that we just, we did not understand. It was one of the most confusing parades we'd ever seen. We, we didn't get the humor we didn't understand the political messages or the sarcasm uh, that was there that were on almost all of these floats that were being pulled along by the tractors in this small farming village. But by far, the most bizarre image in the whole parade were these scary-looking creatures with horns, and some of them had wings and shaggy hair, like, like sheep hair all over them standing six or seven foot tall, and they had these huge cowbells that were uh, draped around them, so when they walked, they would clang together. It, they were scary-looking creatures. And as we watched this parade of these crazy creatures going by, we kept having to, to turn and ask our friends, our neighbors who were there, what is this about? What, what's this mean? And they would explain, well, those creatures, those scary-looking creatures, were the Korenti. It was a Slavic folklore creature that is supposed to scare away the winter. Uh, much like we have our groundhog, who is scared away by a shadow or not, uh, well, that doesn't make any sense either. Uh, but they have their Korenti. They wear sheepskin costumes, cowbells, and are very scary as they bounce around. And especially if you don't know what they're there, or what they represent. What are they, what are they doing? We needed someone to explain the meaning of what we were seeing. Now each creature had, had handkerchiefs hanging off them, multiple handkerchiefs. 
And we heard or found out that they would surround or corner women and a couple of them would be jumping up and down, shaking these cowbells, very scary until the woman would give them a handkerchief that was supposed to shoo away the winter, as if like some snotty handkerchief could change weather patterns. I mean, it's really, it's really just funny, uh, but it's filled with purpose and meaning. It, it looks crazy. These images look bizarre, for, for us at least, but for Slovenes, it was their culture and they knew the meaning behind it. Now, in a similar way, Zechariah is going to see this parade of eight visions over the next six chapters. And as he sees these visions, he will ask uh, often an angel who is with him, what's this mean? He'll see something, ask a question, and then we'll get an explanation. There's a, there's a pattern to these visions. Uh, it goes it, over and over again. They, we see something, then a question is asked, and then we hear an explanation. Now today we're just going to look at the first two visions. And if you were there next to Zechariah in this parade of visions, and you ask him, what did these visions mean? I think he would tell you that the first two visions mean that the Lord is patiently waiting for you to turn to him and is building his kingdom. I think Zechariah, in all the imagery, in all the visions, and all the weird characters would, would say the meaning of what you're going to see is that the Lord is patiently waiting for you to return, to repent, to come to him because he's building his kingdom right now. Now, you might not see the meaning just yet. So, so we'll slow down and consider the images and what they mean. And if the Lord is patiently waiting, you may be wondering, well, where is he at and what's he doing? Uh, I, I can't imagine what he's waiting for. Why doesn't he, he act and move? So this brings us back to our text this morning as we'll consider the meaning behind the first two images. And I'm actually going to suggest four meanings from these images, along with the way, uh, along, uh, along the way, I'm going to tell you about what this uh, tells us about who the Lord is. So we'll see four meanings in these images, and it'll tell us who the Lord is in this. So let's look at the first image. The first image is of horses and riders and a man among some myrtle trees. Now it's been two months since Zechariah spoke the word of the Lord, and challenged the people to turn to the Lord and not be like their forefathers and perish, and the people turned. They, they repented. But now two months have gone by, and during the night, Zechariah sees the vision. Now, this, this first vision, it actually can be very difficult to track with. Uh, so it's much easier to, to see, and uh, if we were together, we could act it out, or you could see it in front of you. But let me just try and... Uh, have you imagined the different people in this scene to help you visualize what is going on here? Now, it appears that there are five different people who speak in this one scene. Five people who speak in the scene. Let, let me identify them. The first one is Zechariah, the prophet. Uh, he is the one that's helping to narrate this whole scene. But different people will speak along the way. 
The, the second person we see is an, is an angel, but this is an angel who's identified as one who speaks with Zechariah, the angel speaking with Zechariah. The third one person we see speaking is this man among the myrtle trees. Well, at least it's mentioned twice as the man among the myrtle trees. And then the third time it's announced he's the angel of the Lord among the myrtle trees. There, there's this man who is also described as the angel of the Lord, which in other biblical references is a title for the pre-incarnate Jesus. This, this is Christ himself, what some people call a theophany. It's, it's Jesus who's taken on the form of a man to communicate with men. So, so this third person we have speaking is the angel of the Lord, or a man, or God himself. It's, it's this God-man among the myrtle trees. So if Zechariah, the angel who is speaking with Zechariah, the angel of the Lord, or the man, or this theophany, the, the fourth group of people we have speaking are the, or the horsemen who ride the other three horses. Uh, they'll end up uh, answering the angel of the Lord. And then the fifth person we have speaking in the scene is the Lord of hosts, or God himself, the Father. So Zechariah, the angel who speaks to Zechariah, the angel of the Lord, the horsemen who ride the other three horses, and then the Lord of hosts or God himself. So now let's work through the text as we hear these different people speak at different times. Verse 8, it says this, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. And behind him were red sorrel, which is like this reddish brown or speckled, and white horses. Verse 9. Then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what these are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they, these horsemen, answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, who was earlier identified as a man, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, the angel of the Lord turns and asks God the Father, the Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered graciously and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, and these are the, the words that God himself told the angel who was talking to Zechariah to tell Zechariah, who then Zechariah speaks these words. He says, cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. 
cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now, let's stop right there. The question still remains, what's all this mean? Well, there's a lot we can unpack here, but I just want to offer three observations about what this vision means, the meaning of these images from the text. The first image I would like to focus on is the myrtle trees and the horses. The myrtle trees and the horses, what's this mean? And I think Zechariah would tell us if we were in this parade, he, we'd ask, what's this mean? And he would lean over and say, this means that the Lord speaks from a place of love. The Lord speaks from a place of love. We are told that there is a man standing among the myrtle trees. In verses 8 and 10, you can see that. But then in verse 11, the horsemen answer the angel of the Lord who is among the myrtle trees. Now, this title, Angel of the Lord, is used in other places uh, in the Bible uh, as a title for, for Christ. We see that this God-man standing among the myrtle trees is, is also identified as this man. Uh, and it's very important to the author that we see the center of this is, is from myrtle trees. He's standing among the myrtle trees. It mentions it three times in this short section, among the myrtle trees, who's among the myrtle trees. So why? What's the, what's the meaning? Well, there's several possibilities. Uh, there is a, a prophecy in Isaiah 55, if you would like to look it up, that, that speaks of this new creation, this Eden-like, this new garden uh, imagery that, that says in verse 13 that instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. This, this evergreen tree that, that has some healing properties uh, among it in this, in this like garden paradise. So that the man among the myrtle trees may be this reference or this imagery of this garden paradise, that the new creation. Now, others have suggested that the myrtle trees actually represent the people of Israel. And that God himself is standing among his people, even at this lowest point. Uh, that God is there with them. But I wonder if the first hearers of this prophecy would have thought, would have seen this image of myrtle trees and thought of a groom waiting for his bride, or maybe even that of a wedding scene. Now, let me share with you why I wonder about that. Listen to what a professor of the, of, at the Jewish Theological Seminary says about myrtles and their meaning uh, in ancient times. He said the myrtle was, in ancient times, the symbol of love, the plant of the bride. When going out to invite his friends to the wedding, the groom would carry myrtle sprigs in his hands. And at the wedding ceremony, it was customary in some places to recite the blessing over the myrtle. An overhead awning of myrtle was created for the bride, while the groom wore a garland of rose or myrtles. I wonder, in seeing myrtles, if we actually miss the meaning of a myrtle tree, and if the ancient hearers would have understood the meaning a little deeper or a little different. I think they would have associated the myrtle tree with a wedding. 
in the same way that we connect like a mistletoe to kissing. Zechariah sees this vision and sees this God-man speaking from a place among his people, like a groom waiting for a bride. The, the call of the Lord to return to him is a call of love as a groom waits at an altar for his bride to come. But, but this is in the glen, it says, the myrtle tree in, in, in the glen, or in Hebrew, it's really the low spot or the bottom. Many scholars believe or recognize this, this could have been the Kidron Valley, a low spot where there were myrtle trees, a, a deep valley right next to Jerusalem. I mean, right next to Jerusalem, in between the city and the Mount of Olives. The, the Lord, in this imagery, in the myrtle trees, in this low spot, that means the Lord is right there. He's right next to Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is right at hand. He, he doesn't come from on, on high, but from down in a lowly place, a, a humble place, a place of, of love. The Lord speaks from a place of love, but not just this sappy feeling, but knowing exactly who you are and where you're at and what you've done and your situation. We see four horses. And you might ask Zechariah, well, what's this mean, these horses? Well, he would tell us that it, it means the Lord sees and knows everything that is happening. There's nothing that happens that gets past the Lord. He knows it all. He feels the hurts. He knows your failures. He knows your longings. These horses that he sees were sent to patrol the earth or all the land. And if the four colors maybe represented the four directions, like we get in Zechariah 6 or the eighth vision, that identifies that these different colored horses are, are sent to patrol the north and the south and the east and the west everywhere, uh, uh, it would mean that the Lord sees and knows everything happening. Now, of course, the Lord doesn't need horses to see and know everything that was happening. But in that time period, I think the image of a, a horse would be the fastest way to gather information on what's going on. It would be very symbolic. Now, if he speaks from a place of love and sees and knows everything, you, you might ask, why doesn't he act now? If he knows the brokenness of that relationship, the longing of a parent for his child, the loneliness of your heart and the bitter words you've spewed to those you love, when will he make things right? When, he'll, when will he respond and act? And I think this brings us to our second observation. We see the angel of the Lord speaking to the Lord of hosts. The angel of the Lord is this this God-man, this pre-incarnate Jesus who speaks to God the Father. And we could ask, well, what's this mean? And Zechariah would tell us, number two. Second meaning we see is that the Lord desires to show mercy. The Lord desires to show mercy. In verse 12, Jesus asked the Father, on our behalf, when will you show mercy? The Son advocating to the Father in a garden 
on our behalf. It brings images of so many other places in the Bible. But what a beautiful picture of our advocate advocating on our behalf to the Father to show mercy. Now, don't get lost in the theological questions about, well, isn't Jesus God, and doesn't he know everything, and why does he have to ask how long? There's something, I think, more powerful being communicated by this image. Jesus desires to show mercy. And in fact, in verse 16, God answers and says, I have returned to Jerusalem. He's right there. He's right at the doorsteps, and he's there with mercy. And with the plan to build God's dwelling place among his people again. The Lord desires to show mercy to his people. The myrtle trees are in the glen, this low place, the Kidron Valley perhaps, right next to Jerusalem. The kingdom of God is at hand, but he's waiting patiently for those who would repent and turn to him so that he could show mercy and not judgment. But even though the Lord speaks from a place of love, he sees and knows everything and has a desire to show mercy to his people, he does not ignore sin or rebellion. It says he was angry with them for 70 years. And you might ask Zechariah then, well, what's this mean? He was angry with them for 70 years. Zechariah would tell us, here's the third meaning, he would say. The Lord is angry with the wicked, sinful, and rebellious. The Lord is angry with the wicked, sinful, and rebellious. You see, God is holy, and he won't allow sin to go unpunished. If he just let a little sin go or turned his eye just a little on the wicked, the rot of sin would destroy the goodness of God. I think that's what we've all experienced in Fred Meyer recently, isn't it? Now, people have walked into uh, the grocery store and grabbed a six-pack of beer and just walked right out the front door without paying for it. Well, that happened to us once. So we told the employees, hey, they're stealing that. And the employees responded, ah, we can't do anything about it. And we just sat there, stunned. There, there's no justice. When the truth of the matter is, if they went after them and that person ended up getting injured, they would sue the store because of uh, some six-pack of beer, it's not valuable as a human life or, or injuring someone. And, and so then they'd probably win the case against Fred Meyer, who would have to settle for a million-dollar payment. And, but they would pass that off to their insurance to pay, which in turn would raise their premiums, which in turn would raise the price of our milk and bread. All because we turned a little eye on sin and wickedness. And there, there's no justice and there's no standing between people. Uh, there's this tension uh, of uh, when will things be right? When will there be judgment and righteousness and holiness and perfection? Well, I don't know if we'll ever as humans get this right. But God does not overlook sin or think uh, rebellion or wickedness is, is okay. He knows it all, he sees it all, and he responds appropriately at the right time. And in between, he is patient and kind. But at some point, he will deal with sin. 
Now we see this in this imagery. You see, Israel had been grievously sinning against the Lord for centuries. And God waited patiently, sending prophet after prophet to warn them, uh, to call them back, to call them to repentance. But they would just ignore it. So the nation of Babylon comes and captures Israel and drags them off to a foreign nation so that they would experience the Sabbaths of the Lord, that they would truly experience the rest that God had designed for them uh, and then restore them back to the land. But the evil and sin of Babylon, he would not leave unpunished either. Although he would use Babylon to correct and punish Israel for their sin, he would not leave Babylon unpunished for their sin. God always brings perfect righteousness and perfect justice. The prophet Jeremiah predicted this. In Jeremiah 25 and verse 12, it says this, Then after 70 years are completed... I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. You see, God never overlooks sin or evil, but must deal with it to maintain the integrity of the kingdom of God as a pure and holy and righteous place. And because of that, he must deal with your sin too. But the Lord remembers the covenant that he has made with his people, his faithful love to bless his people at just the right time and will establish his house in Jerusalem, even through sin and evil of humanity. He would do that through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So what's, what's all this mean, this, this vision? Well, God speaks from a place of love, eagerly waiting for his bride, the church, to repent and turn to him. And he will make things right. He will bring about justice, but also mercy. Now, this first float, it goes by in our parade of visions of these for horsemen. And, and we'd probably like to pause and sit down, have a cup of coffee, and consider what else this all means and what it's pointing to. But before we know it, the next float is already in front of us. And we get this second vision of horns and craftsmen. Now, this is a much shorter vision, and I'll just make one observation after we read about it about what it means. Well, we're going to see something again. And then uh, Zechariah will ask a question and then get an explanation. And then we'll see something else and ask a question and get an explanation again. As the same pattern continues on. Look in verse 18. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. We'll stop right there. Once again, you're probably asking, what is going on? Horns and craftsmen? 
what in the world is this all about? What's this mean? If we were in the parade right next to Zechariah, we'd be like, stop everything. Can you help us understand what the meaning of this is? Well, the idea of horns in the Bible is not like a a horn you necessarily would blow a brass instrument, but uh, it's a horn on an animal, which were used for pouring oil or blowing a horn. It was a symbol, though, of, of power. It would be like a horn of a bull or a billy goat. Horns were images of power and authority, especially on earth. So when horns are lifted up, you can picture a bull with its head really high of pride of nations or superpowers. Well, there's four of these. So there's four powers that scatter Israel and Judah. Now, there's all kinds of views on what these four powers are. And it's really not clear, depending on which scholar or commentary you read. Uh, But I think those four horns may actually just resemble the four horses that we saw in the vision before. It could be that those four horns just mean that there were powers from every direction, but that's left up to uh, discussion. He sees these four horns and then followed closely by these four horns that represents the power that have scattered uh, Israel. He sees the vision of four craftsmen and he asks a slightly different question. He says, what are these coming to do? What are these coming to do? The question is a little different. Somehow, maybe in the vision, it appears that these men have come to work, to do something, to build something. Maybe they have tools or materials in their hands. They're represented as craftsmen or builders, blacksmith or carpenters. These would be the men that would build, that would build God's dwelling place. Now, don't think that these four craftsmen are, are four people. I, I don't, it, it could be, but I don't think that's really what the meaning of it is behind there. Uh, the fact that, that these four uh, cast down the evil powers of the different ages of, of maybe Egypt or Assyria, Babylon, Persia, uh, Greece or, or Rome, whatever superpowers are there, the Lord was was bringing them to to shame, to to ruin, because of these four craftsmen, these these people who came to build God's kingdom. God was building his church, his people, his community, even in the evil cultures, wherever they were, who in their pride and arrogance... They were brought low by what God was building in their midst. I think this last vision leaves us with a a word of encouragement. As the earthly powers all around us raise their heads in arrogance, that that the way to defeat them, the way to defend against them, to bring them low, to scatter them, is to simply build God's kingdom. To build his dwelling place. Now, it's not build him a building to dwell in. The building is actually the people of God. It's his church. It's this community of Jesus followers. To combat the evil in the world, 
God has designed his church to advance and build the kingdom of God, to be a light to the world. Now, you can only overcome the darkness by bringing the light. You may not know how to respond to all the evil and wickedness that's all around us, to our culture and politics and government and uh, even in our own neighborhoods. You may, you may feel this urge to fight them, to destroy them. But it appears from this vision that the way God is bringing to nothing the arrogance and pride of the world is by building this humble community of Jesus followers through all cultures and all times. He's speaking from this place of love and patience and kindness to those who turn and repent. And those people who turn and repent and make the Lord their shepherd will be building his church no matter what comes no matter what trends in the culture or wickedness in our government, God is patiently waiting for you to turn to him and allow him to use you to build his church as well. It doesn't come in might or with a sword. It comes with a plow and some seeds. It's slow and methodical work. It's, it's humble work. It's serving your neighbor over and over again, even when they want nothing to do with you. It's praying for your coworkers or employers. It's coming around and encouraging uh, the community of Jesus followers around you. It's seeing God build his kingdom right where you're at and not being afraid. It's listening to the voice of the shepherd as he calls you to come to himself, to receive mercy and forgiveness, and offer that to others as well. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these visions. Would you allow us to see them? Would you allow us to, to see this man among the myrtles who is eagerly desiring to have a relationship with us? who calls us from our wickedness and evil and rebellion and wants to offer forgiveness and a relationship with us, who, who wants to build his kingdom through us in this world. So Lord, we, even as a, a church, would we listen to you and follow after you? Lord, would we, um, would we see this little church on the hill, this little country church, be so powerful that it would impact uh, the cities of Boring and Damascus, that it will even impact uh, on the city leaders, uh, on the government around us. Would, would we so impact our world that the, the kingdom of God would shine like a, a light on a hill that no one could hide? And Lord, would you give each of us peace and mercy today as we repent from our sins and turn to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. 
We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212, between Boring and Damascus, Oregon, or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church.